0: Welcome to A Lawyer's Guide to the Galaxy, a podcast about geek culture by lawyers, with your hosts, Ben Siders and Kirk Damon. This episode is sponsored by Heisenberg's Pet Emporium. We have cats. We also don't have cats. Stop in and see for yourself.
1: And welcome to episode five of The Lawyer's Guide to the Galaxy. I am your host, Ben. With me here, as always, is your other host, Kirk. Kirk, say hi to the people. Hi to the people. And once again, that's Kirk, as in the captain of the enterprise. Yes, indeed. So, Kirk... um, What's up? How you doing, man?
0: Doing pretty good. Um, So, I've heard today we're going to talk about what's happening tomorrow.
1: Yes, yes. We're going to talk today about what's happening tomorrow and what people 30 years from now did 10 years ago.
0: Okay. Um, And that is indeed that today's
1: episode is going to be talking about time travel. Yes. Because time travel is a huge amount of fun. Uh, Yes, indeed. Now, let me ask you a question. Have you heard of a warp engine? Of course I've heard of a warp engine. Uh, Now, and do you know how it works? Uh, yeah, you
0: put these big nacelles in the back of a spacecraft, right. and Scotty tells you whether or not you're going to blow them up.
1: Bro- bro- broad strokes. We warp space time, and then the vessel it's attached to moves forward. Exactly. Right? How about uh, how about transporters? Yep,
0: definitely heard about transporters. And what and do they do?
1: Transporters take you from
0: one place and move you to another. And the doctors don't like to use them because they've experienced them way too much.
1: <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and uh, how do they do this? Right? Like, what's what's the underlying technology?
0: The underlying technology. And I think they went through this in one of the episodes. Is basically they you know, sort of convert you to code, transmit the code. And then reformulate you. Yeah, right. Uh, it's a fancy 3D printer, so to speak. Yeah, basically, I
1: mean, you get disintegrated and then transmitted to somewhere else and reassembled. Yep, which, which, if you think about it, that means you die every time you transport.
0: Exactly, it. and I think that's one of the issues that's always kind of amusing about transporters and one of the things they've gotten into is: does anybody really actually want this <laughs> technology to come
1: true? And how about how about uh, cloaking devices? You know how those work? Oh yeah, definitely. The cloaking devices is what allows the
0: Romulans to just simply show up in their lovely little wavy form on the front of the screen.
1: Yeah, and 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 you know technically all you're doing is bending light waves around a device, and if you've been paying Attention to the internet for the last, I don't know since it's existed. You've seen people trying to invent these things. So uh, some of the stuff we've talked about actually exists. Um, how about transparent aluminum? Oh yeah, transparent
0: aluminum is a staple in conjunction of Star Wars, Star Trek at this point. Yeah, and
1: and there actually is such a thing. It's uh, I looked it up right before we started. It's called aluminum oxynitride. It's a transparent ceramic that's actually been around for like 15 years. Yep. So so some of this stuff that like we've we've found out about in in you know Star. Trek, or mostly Star Trek, but in geek culture has been the genesis for people trying to invent these things. There's, I just read about, I think it's called quantum tweezers, it's some sort of microscopic level tractor beam type technology. Uh, and what we're going to talk about today is um, you know can could you patent this stuff so well so, I think
0: an interesting thing just to talk about is the idea that you know when we're talking about this sort of Star Trek technology and stuff that's technology going forward if we go back in time you can you can bump into this I actually just happened to be on on, on board the intrepid Museum out in New York City and one of the ones they talk about it, and we went through a, a space presentation they go through Jules Verne spacecraft and the spacecraft that existed um, you know long before humans had any form of space Space travel before, in many respects, we even really had flight. Um, and powered flight uh, was something that was common. And you know, you look through what these were, and one of the things <laughs> they talk about is how it encouraged people, and it sort of. Um, You know, the the science fiction became a genesis to move forward. And one of the ones he really talked about is you look at some of the original spacecraft. And, I mean, they had no concept of the idea of vacuum, of needing spacesuits. I mean, these things are basically studies in space. Um, Yeah, there's great discussion. You know, they have dogs with them, you know, sort of stuff like that. You know, all the tools they need, which includes pickaxes and things along those lines. But one of the ones that was really interesting, they actually talked about a film... Um, that came out where it was a German film and it actually came out and it basically sort of implies using a rocket. And when World War II started, it was actually suppressed because of the fact that they didn't want people thinking about the fact that rockets could potentially be used to do this. The reason being is because one of the consultants they had on it was one of the great rocket scientists. (laughs) And that's actually where he'd come up with the idea of using a rocket to get to the moon. So there's some really interesting sort of things when even if you go back in time of science fiction encouraging
1: actual Innovation. So what we're going to talk about today is is related to that, and it's. How does it work when, and this is this is going to be presented as a hypothetical, but it's not. Suppose a time traveler from the future, say the 2030s, comes back to our time and brings with him or her uh, the plans for a futuristic device. This is actually a plot device in a number of Star Trek episodes, or at least one I can think of. Uh, and, then, and, then, and then tries to get IP rights to what they brought back, basically taking future technology back to the past and then trying to enrich yourself on it. Believe it or not, This has happened, uh, and this application has been filed with the Patent Office, and so we know what will happen. So this is one of the few episodes where we're going to have an answer to the question. Now, to understand this, you need some background on how this happened because it's not as all as it seems.
0: And I'm going to let Ben tell the story because he knows this story much better than I do. I actually followed this and what's
1: going on. So cast your mind back to the 2000 U.S. presidential election. Uh, We're talking about Bush v. Gore. Florida's up for grabs. Litigation is flying. It's like November, January. And uh, a guy starts posting on bulletin boards. And for those of you who are under a certain age namely our age <laughs> you may not know what a bulletin board is but these would be old text based BBSs uh, back in the day it, it, it
0: is sort of a bulletin board is to Facebook what you can say a garage sale is to you yeah,
1: yeah but believe it or not there was social networking before Facebook and this is what it was so this is the year 2000 when Google didn't have a search engine yet uh, and this guy was posting on BBSs claiming to be a time traveler from the year 2036 he said he was uh, a soldier from Florida sent back in time to recover an IBM 15. T100 uh, mini computer. Uh, to deal with the Unix 2038 problem, which, if you don't know, is an elaborate, much more complex uh, p- version of the Y2K problem. The short version is the way Unix tracks time. Uh, in 2038, it will run out of bits and flip back over, and your Unix machines will all think it's like 1912.
0: And of course, if you remember the Y2K bug, that'll result in apocalypse,
1: which obviously it yeah. did. Yeah, this, this this problem's pretty much all been fixed by 64-bit operating systems, and it really only lives now in you know old embedded systems. So, if just so you know. And you heard it here first. If in 2038 you are still using an old embedded Linux system you got in the late 90s, it will break. Okay. So anyway, um, uh, the guy uh, on the internet told a very elaborate story about coming civil strife resulting in the United States splitting into five districts, if this sounds like a series of movies you've heard lately, I'm sure that's a coincidence, uh, culminating in a short but violent World War III in 2015, which obviously did not happen. Uh, this, is, this is, you know, in my opinion, a bunch of nonsense, and everybody who isn't a, a, a tinfoil hat conspiracy nut should have realized that at the time, regardless. Uh, the poster, uh, he went by the name John, I don't know how it's pronounced, Teeter or Titor, T-I-T-O-R, are. He has a Wikipedia page, so you can look him up. Uh, he was challenged as being a hoaxer by smart people, and he tried to prove his claims by posting on the internet diagrams of his General Electric Model C204 time displacement unit, and even explained uh, a little bit how the physics worked He basically said it's the EWG multiverse theory, and so all quantum states simultaneously exist somewhere within the superverse. Which, as an aside, if he's right, that means that my alma mater, the University of Iowa Hawkeyes, have won 15 straight football championships in some alternate universe, and that's the universe I should have been born in. Yeah, we know you'd like that to be true. Uh, That would be great. Anyway, uh, so Teeter explained uh, he pulled a poochie and said he's going back to his own time, and then uh, never posted anything again. And since he never asked for money or tried to sell. Anything, everybody assumed he was legit. I presume he's also never been seen again. I don't know if anybody even knew who he actually was. I don't think he has. But- and, and the fact that the, just the mere fact he didn't try to sell anything is a threshold for credibility is an alarming statement about our society. But moving on, uh, fast forward to two thousand four a guy named Marlon Pullman took Teeter's schematics and his explanations of how the time machine worked and filed for a patent with the U.S. Patent Office. And you can actually look it up. It's application number 10 slash 954767. We'll post that in the show notes. And it was published uh, on April 6th of 2006. The Patent Office dutifully examined his application, issued a decision. And here's the question. Did he get a patent and why or why not? And before we answer that, I'm going to warn you, there are some incredibly, I won't say dumb, but non-intuitive things that have been patented. Number one I can think of is Magic the Gathering. Turning a card sideways is I think the patent just expired.
0: Kim, be getting close to as to what yeah. it is. But yeah, there's one of the things to keep in mind is that the patent really threshold requirements in many respects are very low. Um, it simply requires something to be novel and non-obvious. And useful. Um, it, you can't useful. patent garbage. Yeah, you can't patent something which is completely non-useful. At the same time, it's one of those things where when you think about it as you mean non-obvious does not necessarily mean it's practical or it does not necessarily mean it's something everybody's going to want. I mean, One of my favorite sort of, you know, very old patents of of things that is a little bit interesting is a method for waking people up um, silently. So instead of having an alarm that goes off and makes a lot of noise, um, it drops a pillow on your head.
1: So it's there's a the guy that patented a new way to swing on a swing, like a way yep. to swing sideways without having to actually move your upper torso. Yep. And the question is always, why does anybody want to patent this? And what do you do with infringers? Yep. And the answer is, uh, who knows? It's probably just some but crazy... But the real
0: key question it. about it is, is the United States Patent and Trademark Office, when they're looking at this, is not going to really look at the fact of, yeah, is they don't this care about your motivations. useful, what's your motivations or anything else? They're going to look at it, and they're going to say, is it novel? Which basically means, is it new? Does it not exist previously? Now, is obviously, the time options? machine is new. Yep, obviously, the time machine is new. Is it non-obvious? Well, we actually don't have how to do time travel at this point in time, so presumably it's also a non-obvious method for doing it. Well,
1: let's back up to where, where patent rights come from in the first place. Yep. So uh, this is going to be one of the few times on this show I'm going to read to you from the law. But fortunately, it is the shortest possible statement of the law, and that's the U.S. Constitution. So our, our patent rights, in our country at least, are defined in the Constitution. If you're curious, Article 1, Section 8, Clause 8, also sometimes called the IP Clause. And it says... Uh, Congress has the power to promote the progress of science and useful arts by securing for limited times to authors and inventors the exclusive right to their respective writings and discoveries. Uh, Pretty straightforward. uh, And the key thing we're going to focus on there is securing two inventors. And that should be a hint as to how this case comes out. So there's... You, to understand patents, you have to understand a little bit of of the time frame in which they were uh, uh, established. The Patent Act, I, I think, was one of the first couple dozen things Congress yep. did after but the you, Revolution. You keep
0: in mind as well, you know, what the section you just read is in the United States Constitution. This is yeah. not an, an amendment to the United yeah, States. Constitution. This is Constitution.
1: like the 1780s version.
0: Yeah, in the original Constitution, and so that tells you a lot of, you know, that this was something that was very important. Now it was obviously arising out of our English heritage. I mean, that's the reason why we had this, and and many protections of patent and
1: copyright arise out of England long before there is a United States. And there's two ways to protect cool things at the time. One was, don't tell anybody. Yep. And the other one was, Tell everybody, and don't tell anybody is called trade secret. This is where you ferret away your your special technology. You don't tell anybody how it works or how to do it, and as long as nobody figures it out, you're the only one that can do it. Trade now, secret
0: is the formula for Coca-Cola. Exactly, we're all exactly,
1: with that. right. You can't patent you know recipes for the most part, so Coca-Cola keeps that on lockdown. Uh, and if anybody else were to legally and independently figure out what's in Coke, they could make it. They can't call it Coke because a trademark, but they could make a chemically identical substance and sell it. Uh, which would obviously erode uh, uh, Coca-Cola's market share. Maybe <laughs> so. Maybe yeah. Uh, you know, the formula, all these pharmaceutical generics are out there too, but people still pick up you know yep. the the name brand that costs a buck more. So the the downside of trade secrets is. If somebody else figures out what you're doing, then you kind of lose the the IP protection. The upshot is they never expire. So as long as nobody figures it out, yep. you're all set. The, and the, trade
0: secret is kind of an interesting thing because trade secret literally is sort of the law recognizing the ability of just, I'm going to keep something secret and that's okay.
1: Yeah. Yeah, and this is where corporate espionage comes from too. Uh, and there's a whole separate legal regime called trade secret misappropriation. And in fact, the federal government, I think, last year finally enacted a yep. federal trade secrets act. But uh, the, as, as, a, as a public policy matter, we don't really like trade secret. We think it's better that if important scientific and technical advances are discovered, they should be disclosed. So, no, you know, way number two of protecting cool innovations is tell everybody, and that's what patents are. And conceptually, the patent is essentially a contract with the public that gives you a private right and eventually gives the public access to your technology.
0: One of the key things to keep in mind about patents is that they are a limited time, and that's actually one of the elements you specifically said in conjunction with that constitutional quote, is the constitutional quote specifically says that it grants the power to promote it um, for exclusive rights in their respective writings and discoveries, but one of the elements that that you didn't specifically put in there is that it's for a limited time. And that's a a very important element in conjunction with patents. Particularly for
1: patents, which are very short-lived. So those of you who know, copyrights last for all practical purposes, forever, well, right?
0: It's 70 years plus the life of the author. Right, um, so, is, so you know, if, if Kirk and time. I both
1: have a heart attack and drop dead right now, this podcast enters a public domain in the t- 2080s.
0: Yeah, so I, that's, you know, there's something with, you know, I consider that patents on the other hand have a, a term of 20 years from the day that they're filed. These yeah. modern patents, older patents actually had a, a term that was 17 years from the date they issued, but that changed back
1: in the uh, the 90s, if I remember correctly. By legal standards, it's a short amount of time. So, but to get a patent, in exchange for giving you this temporary monopoly on your invention, you uh, you are required to explain to the public everything about it. You have to tell us what it is, how to make it, uh, how to use it, how it works. You have to basically provide a specification that enables us to make and practice your invention. The whole idea behind the patent is we get to rip you off, uh, but in exchange, you get 20 years of exclusive uh, use of, of the patent. So you have to jump through a lot of hoops to get a patent. And you have to tell us everything, and then it's going to be published to the public. So going back to John Teeter, what happened? Well, here's what he claimed for his patent, and I'm going to read a little bit of this because it's actually pretty interesting. So he tried to patent a method for the generation of a pseudo 2 plus 1 dimensional, I don't know how to pronounce all these words, anti Sitter space comprising, essentially creating two black holes overlapping the event horizons and creating a space-time bubble that lets you travel back in time. His explanation is about 400 words long, but that's basically what it is. Now the question, did he get the patent? Kirk... I'm pretty sure he didn't. Of course he did not. Um, now, there's there's two reasons why he didn't get it. Uh, one is the official reason that the patent office gave, but there's another reason that's even more interesting. And the I,
0: think, yeah, I think the, the thing that's that really interesting to get into in conjunction with this is, a lot of people would look at this and say, well, he doesn't get the patent because this thing doesn't really exist. Which doesn't and matter. It doesn't matter. And if that's a key thing to keep in mind, is the patent office does not require you to have ever actually built your invention. It simply requires you to describe it in sufficient detail that somebody
1: could build it. So his first step is creating two Kerr-type positively charged Charge rotating dilation singularities. Here's the problem. How? Yeah. Nowhere in his disclosure does he explain how to do it. There's no enabling disclosure. We don't have this technology now. This is another thing with patents. If everybody already knows how to do something, you don't have to explain it. So if I try to patent, you know, uh, something that involves using a web server, I don't have to explain how to set up a hypertext transfer protocol. It's just assumed that a person of ordinary skill in this technology area would know how to do that. However, we do not know how to create black holes. Uh, at least not well, we yet. We do know they exist. At this we know point they in time. exist. We don't know how to make one that does not also swallow the Earth Or make one period. So uh, his rejection he got was under a section called 112, which means that he did not provide an enabling disclosure, and so he cannot get the patent. But I think there's a more interesting reason why he should not have gotten it, and it is simply this. He didn't invent it.
0: Well, and that's, I think, the most
1: interesting question you've got here.
0: One of the key things we mentioned, and you said it right in the beginning of this, and I don't know if you guys caught it. Mr. Titor, or however you pronounce his name, did not file this patent application. Our time traveler himself did not actually file for the patent application. It was filed by another individual who took the schematics yeah. back.
1: Yeah, and so uh, I guess it's possible that the Tidor hoax was perpetrated by Pullman. I don't know if that's true or not, in which case maybe Pullman did invent it. It could basically be the same person, I suppose. But well, here's a more interesting question. So, so what if Tidor traveled back in time and then filed the application in his own name when he was like two years old?
0: Well, and didn't we, we sort of had something like this happen if I remember right. Didn't this happen in like Star Trek 4? Um, yes. Where we actually go back and there's an issue in conjunction with the fact that they need transparent aluminum because they need to transport the whale um, to get it back, but of course nobody knows how to make it, so so they, you know, they perform it, they put it on a computer. to right, gives of the
1: guy the chemical formula yep. in exchange for the for the glass they need yep. for the whale containment area. And he
0: makes it, and you sort of see serendipitously, the guy hit save, you know, in conjunction yep. with it, uh, and save the methodology. So you kind of bump into that of the idea that this is, you know, almost directly, this, this sort of scenario is almost directly out of a Star Trek movie.
1: Yeah, it's pretty similar. Um, now, uh, another interesting question. So if, if Tiner filed it himself... Yep. Uh, and and uh, and and he was alive, and he was the inventor.
0: Could you, in theory, get a patent on that? You could, in theory. Although I think in this, John Teter himself is now really not the inventor because we talked about the right. fact that this is a GE device. He claimed to be a soldier, and, yep. and, and so GE would have owned the rights. And, and, it, and especially when they say GE is becoming the umbrella corporation and is now a quasi-military <laughs> organization, or pick your other favorite, you know, corporation which takes <laughs> over the world in the, the distant dystopian future. Um, that's not what he claimed. He did. He simply claimed to be a soldier.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. So he didn't invent it either. So presumably so let's just indulge for a moment this fantasy that that all of this was legit and Mr. Teeter was telling the truth. So this means at some point in the future, GE invents a time machine, which somebody by the way and GE, not GE, yeah, somebody, somebody at does, GE. and GE acquires the rights. So so buy your GE stock right now. Uh, but um the, the the more interesting question is what happens when GE goes to pursue this patent in the t- 2030s? Is this prior disclosure now prior art?
0: Yep, and that's uh, the term prior art that you just heard Ben use, by the way, is you cannot patent anything which is known, as we mentioned, the idea has to be novel and non-obvious. Anything which occurs beforehand is referred to in patent lingo as prior art. So basically anything which comes before when you file for your patent application is something which you have to be novel and non-obvious in light of. So the obvious danger is if you put something out there, you put a product on sale, then you later try to patent it. Your product, which is on sale, can be art against you, and that's a gross oversimplification of sort of the way prior art works. But what It's a good way to think time. about it. You know,
1: people come to us with something they want to patent. You know, yep. and and they've already had it on sale for years in, in, in advance. And yep. Like, well, now I finally have made enough money off my sales to patent it. Well, now it's too late.
0: And that's the issue we have here. That's very interesting. Is that assuming we assume this is all true, um, we have somebody having filed this patent application to something that GE or somebody at GE will presumably invent a few years from now. So. How do we deal with the fact that it already is out there in a patent application? A patent application, in some sense, is the best form of prior art there is, because we talked about that enablement piece and the idea that you have to have this disclosure which says, here's how to build it. We've told people how to build it. If this is now possible, presumably this patent application has told people how to build it. Another
1: thing, prior art references also have to be enabling. So. If I was the lawyer in 2030, I'd say, well, we have an action from the patent office saying this was not an enabling disclosure, so it can't be good for prior art yep. either.
0: Now, the problem with it is, is what was enabled, though, is how to make the singularities.
1: So you'd have to claim the invention with more detail. like You'd have to get the patent on how you form the black hole rather than just the fact that you formed it.
0: Yep, and I think that's one of the issues that you bump into this is you can look at this and say, assuming this methodology does actually work and this creates a time machine by overlapping two black holes, that's now actually been disclosed. Now, again, we're making an assumption that all of this is true, Um, but you then bump into that may not be patentable to actually say we can make a time machine by overlapping two black holes. Even though it's not enabled in here, what's not enabled is how to make the black hole in the first
1: place. So one could
0: say that may be patentable.
1: And that goes back to our initial talk about uh, warp drives and transporters, these things that are being invented now, and why, you know, how come Star Trek, the original series, is not prior art as to warp drives? If all you were to claim in a patent is a warp drive, well then it is prior art. But, you know, you'd have to put into your patent application how you form the warp fields and all that kind of stuff, which means that the the Star Trek disclosure, while it might be relevant prior art, you should probably put it on an information disclosure statement to the Patent Office, um, is, is probably not going to prevent you from getting a patent because it doesn't explain how it works. Yeah, and that's uh, and that's
0: a really interesting thing sort of, when you get into science fiction, and particularly when you get into the idea of science fiction being prior art, is there's a lot of stuff which has explained how this stuff works. You know, when you think about it, there's technical guides out there exactly about how a transporter works. And when you start getting into modern technologies that are created from it— You have the idea of how much of this actually is fiction and how much of it is science. There's a number of science fiction books out there where they go greatly into the science about how this could work. At the same time, they don't necessarily, they may leave an enabling step aside or one of those. Talking about time travel, And I think it's sort of a great example. One of the the things I used to read a lot when I was a kid is Dean Koontz. And Dean Kut's novels, one of the things I always liked, is that most of his novels simply require you to make a s- acceptance of certain things as being truth before you begin with the novel, and then the novel makes sense. And mm-hmm. it's usually sort of a scientific truth. He writes one about time travel, a novel called Lightning. And one of the great things in conjunction with Lightning is how the time travel interacts with it. And the book makes sense if you accept the fact that time travel is simply possible mm-hmm. and when it occurs and stuff along those lines. Um you get into the science behind a lot of these science fictions and this basic sort of assumption you then get into well what happens when somebody makes the assumption true we talked earlier about uh, earlier about transporter and the idea of what a transporter is and i made the reference the transporter is effectively just a fancy 3d printer in many respects, those <laughs> so is a Star Trek: The Next Generation replicator. I mean, it's something which allows you to create food well, out a of component
1: molecules. A holodeck's like a, a multi-directional conveyor belt and force fields.
0: Yeah, and people are making effectively, you know, artif, you know, um, you know, AR, um, augmented reality, and virtual reality devices at yeah, this point in time, which use multi-directional treadmills, which use this kind of thing with it. Where do we get into the line between science fiction and not just science in this case, but actually innovation, and particularly when we're talking about
1: patentable innovation? Well, I think. I think what it boils down to is scope, right? The the more detail that's been previously disclosed, fictional or not, you know, it doesn't matter if it doesn't work, right? It doesn't matter if the prior art is is fake or made up. The bottom line is the disclosure is out there. Yep. And so uh, if... You know, and an interesting question to me is if somebody happens to accidentally figure out, say, some sci-fi author exactly how to do all this stuff in enough detail, yeah. you could really narrow down the scope of future patent protection available to somebody who actually practices the invention.
0: Yeah, and that's the I think the most interesting thing is as, as our science fiction and a lot of the science fiction that I think is becoming more and more popular is becoming more and more detailed on the science facts of it. And and particularly certain authors are very into writing
1: very detailed science facts. And Trek in particular is a reason why a lot of our examples come from Star Trek, as uh, the, the the Trek producers always, I think. We're famous for making a more concerted effort than most to get the science right, to at least use the correct terminology. I can't tell you how many scientific principles I first heard on Star Trek. I'll never forget tachyons. I learned from the next generation.
0: <laughs> yep, uh, and and this kind of things. and it's it is just an interesting interplay between the the fiction and the reality. And as much as it was, you know, our prior episode we talked a lot about copyright and the interests mm-hmm. of copyright and and sort of things in fictional universe. Now we're talking about very real world things. We're not talking about something which somebody has created. We're talking about the interaction of what somebody has simply created and in some sense as a purposely fictional plot element mm-hmm. now coming into, no, this is a real-world innovation and this is a real-world change. And you get almost an intersection between the idea of the world that, that a science fiction author may wish to create or may wish not to create, depending on which author you're
1: talking about, um, interacting with the world which is then being created in the future. Well, there's, there's one more possible resolution to this whole question of what happens if you come back in time and disclose. If the multiverse theory is correct and all quantum states exist in a superverse, <laughs> then the grandfather paradox doesn't exist, right? So it's possible that what we're talking about is just the legal version of the grandfather paradox. So maybe in the future, a version where the prior arts disclose, nobody ever invents the time machine.
0: So yeah. it's not a problem. And that's one of the great things that you sort of get into in conjunction with anything with time travel. And it's one <laughs> of the ones that I've always liked in when I review time travel. And it's, you know, you read books on time travel. one of the ones another Star Trek example there's a great novel it's one of the very first novels in the Star Trek novella series which in high school I was addicted to and the book's called The Entropy Effect and one of the things I really love about The Entropy Effect and if you haven't read it spoiler alert um, I'm going to give away a lot of the plot here but there's a number of scenes which take place in it which are, are not real important in conjunction with it there's a scene where Scotty goes chasing after Spock and can't figure out why he can't find him and the reason that all these scenes happen is because Spock travels back in time, but it's very important that he's already been seen in all of these scenes by somebody as the course of the book. And so when you get into the idea of time travel, we bump into the scenario that basically says, have these things already happened? And so we look at the idea of saying, hey, it's not. Bad. Is it possible to patent the time machine? Has somebody already come back in time and removed the patent <laughs> for the time machine? You know, has something changed the past um, already? And again, the Dean Kutz book I mentioned, Lightning, that's another one of the same sort of important stories, which is, in that one, um, it's the, the the basic premise of it, and again, spoiler alert if you haven't read the book and want to, um, is it's, it's created by Nazi Germany and the guy who's coming back as a soldier, um, and he's actually jumping into the future. And the issue in conjunction with it is he wants to change... Um, uh, some the, the life of this person, that he's this woman that he's essentially fallen in love with and has had a series of, of unfortunate events occur. And it starts off in, in the story with her having already encountered him repeated times. Mm-hmm. And that's an important element is the fact that he's already there. He already exists sort of in the past before you find out anything in conjunction with the time travel. And I think that's one of the most interesting things in conjunction with it. and. In conjunction with that book, and again, you know, sort of a spoiler alert as to what it is, there's a key end as to why World War II ends and the fact that basically he, this, this individual soldier on purpose ends World War II and creates the history we know in order to carry out what it is he's trying to do. So you bump into that problem of exactly how does time travel affect real world travel.
1: Uh, another book along those lines if anybody's interested in this kind of stuff check out uh, The Stars My Destination by Alfred Bester it's sort of an older book but uh, if you're interested in time travel paradoxes and uh, and general sci-fi stories that's another good one well I see uh, we're, we're short on time here so we're going to wrap it up um, so this again would be the part where uh, we take questions comments and uh, and questions from Well Actually guys but you uh, we, we haven't given us any yet you haven't given us any yet so I don't know what you guys are doing out there but it's, it's spending not enough time on Twitter so uh, jump on Twitter check us out on Facebook facebook we're on twitter at lgg pod uh or you can uh, subscribe to us on itunes stitcher podbean uh, all the places where people who listen to podcasts get podcasts to listen to um ask us questions give us suggestions leave us comments and most importantly if you like this podcast leave us reviews if you don't don't yeah
0: please go back in time if you don't like it go go back forward wherever you came from
1: <laughs> all right uh that's all i think we've got today i think that's everything all right thank you for listening The views expressed by the
0: participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by Lewis Rice LLC, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer.
1: This podcast was produced and recorded at Cool Fire Studios in St. Louis, Missouri.